0: Hey, everyone. Quick heads up that there is some raw language in this episode. That includes a racial slur. All right, here's the show. Jeremy Stahl is one of the folks at Slate who watches a lot of hearings on Capitol Hill. And as he watched this week's big hearing play out, watched police officers testify in front of Congress about what they saw on January 6th, He was struck by the fact that he could still be surprised. After all, we've all seen the footage from that day. Most of us watched it live.
1: But in hearing these police officers describe what it was that we were seeing, just resonated and connected in a way that seeing interspersed cut clips of all these things having happened could not.
0: The moment in this hearing that Jeremy just can't shake came a couple of hours in. D.C. police officer Michael Fanone was asked to narrate his own body cam footage.
1: Michael Fanone was a police officer that day who who rushed to the Capitol entrance to basically bolster the front line that was guarding the Capitol building.
2: I just remember getting violently assaulted from every direction. And uh, I knew I was in, uh, I was up shit creek without a paddle.
1: He said as he stepped outside, he was like, oh, it's good to get some fresh air, and then he was dragged away at that very moment.
2: They beat me. I was struck with a taser device at the base of my skull numerous times. He was
1: electrocuted multiple times, he said. He suffered a heart attack. We need now!
2: And uh, other officers were then able to uh, rescue me and pull me back inside. But at that point, I was unconscious. Mike, stay in there, buddy. Mike, it's Jimmy. I'm here Mike.
1: Just seeing these horrific clips over and over and over again, and having that memory of watching that ha- unfold live that day, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing as seeing this person up there talk about it and and tell you what happened and what they actually lived through.
0: You've covered all sorts of proceedings in Washington that are supposed to offer some measure of accountability for bad behavior. I wonder if this proceeding, it feels like it felt different to you. raw somehow. And more effective, maybe.
1: Yeah. On Tuesday, what you got was unvarnished reality, which is the first time I can recall that happening at one of these hearings.
0: Today on the show, how the select committee on January 6th is using its authority differently and why that could make all the difference. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Before the police officers who were there on January 6th could tell their stories, Congress had to decide who they were going to tell those stories to. Originally, this investigation was supposed to be done far away from Capitol Hill, which is, after all, the scene of the crime. Democrats and Republicans were going to appoint five people each to a bipartisan commission, which would get years to do its work. But that plan got scrapped by Senate Republicans. That's how this select committee. Came to be. It too was supposed to have members appointed by congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle.
1: Speaker Pelosi selected one Republican as one of her members. She's, she's selected Liz Cheney, you know, because she wanted it to. It's an
0: olive branch.
1: It's an olive branch. And it's also a matter of showing that, you know, this is not about partisanship. I disagree with this person on every other thing except whether or not insurrections are okay. And like that choice should have been like a firm marker. This is something that we can all take seriously if you can get on board. And instead, the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, pointed these two firebrands, Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, who had, you know, spoken very dismissively about the need for any investigation whatsoever into January 6th.
0: Jim Jordan, people might remember, because if you've watched him at a committee hearing, He sounds like an auctioneer. Like he just jumps right in there and he moves a mile a minute. Yeah. He's from Ohio.
1: It's the the most recent and pressing in my mind example of this that I, I can recall is there was a House Judiciary Committee hearing just last month with the FBI director, Christopher Wray, where the FBI director was explicitly there to talk about January 6th. And... Jordan spent his entire five minutes talking without, I don't even think, taking a breath. But what he was talking about was riots in Portland and cancel culture and uh, disorder and, uh, you know, border crisis. And of course, freedom of speech, we all know what's happened to that. Big tech censoring conservatives, the cancel culture mob attacking anyone who disagrees with them. And he was just, he was... Ranting about how this is such a waste of time,
0: so when Kevin McCarthy appointed him, you knew what you were going to get,
1: yes, you were going to get a just what what I would call a an oversight arsonist, just burning as much of the hearing down as he as he possibly could,
0: so Congress changed course again. First, Nancy Pelosi blocked these two controversial Republicans from joining the committee then-House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy withdrew all of his appointments, essentially packing up his toys and going home. Pelosi returned fire, appointing another member, moderate Republican Adam Kinzinger of
1: Illinois. And it became an immediate narrative that Kevin McCarthy had pulled a fast one on Speaker Pelosi because he had forced her to be really partisan and there, were, there was no bipartisan credibility now. And that was a, a big notion that was being kind of shared among savvy D.C. reporters last week and then yesterday. And everyone covered the hearing just like it was a normal hearing. Nobody, nobody was talking about the lack of bipartisanship or anything like that because, again, there Nancy Pelosi appointed a second Republican. That helped. But there were two Republicans on there, and that was not the story yesterday. The story was actual reality. So I feel like it kind of backfired in a way on, on Kevin McCarthy. It's interesting because you say
0: that, you know, even last week there was this narrative of Nancy Pelosi was forced by Kevin McCarthy to do this really partisan select committee, even though she had appointed – two Republicans at that point to to be there, too. And in this hearing, you really could see how Democrats were trying to give this investigation a bipartisan feeling. Like, the second person to speak after the chairman was Liz Cheney, a Republican.
1: Yeah, and, you know, whether or not that helps allay any of this concern over this is going to be a purely partisan inquiry and all that. Um, I don't think that does as much as the fact that they just held a really good hearing. They just held a hearing with four witnesses, uh, Aquilino Ganell, Michael Fanone, Daniel Hodges, Harry Dunn, who had just these incredible and tragic and horrifying stories to tell. And they were able to get through their stories and tell their stories and give their perspective on what the next steps need to be in this committee without, uh, you know, it being turned into a showdown over cancel culture and procedures. And that didn't happen. And instead, what you had was Sergeant Connell testifying about being horribly assaulted and then going home to his wife and not being able to hug her after not being in contact with her all day and like, being very, very badly attacked because was he, he was so covered in bear spray and other poisons, basically, and he could not. And he could not hug his wife. I arrived at home at nearly four a.m. on January 7th. I had to push my wife away
0: from me because she wanted to hug me.
2: And I told her no because of the all the chemical that I
1: my uniform had. On, And you had Michael Fanone talking about nearly being beaten to death and basically begging for his life, saying, I've got kids to escape this mob that had taken over the Capitol. During the assault, I thought about using my firearm on my attackers.
2: But I knew that if I did, I would be quickly overwhelmed. And that in their minds would provide them with the justification for killing me. So I instead decided to appeal to the, any humanity they might have. I said as loud as I could manage, I've got kids.
1: And you had Daniel Hodge, who, who had that famous image of him being trapped in the door and getting crushed, crushed by this mob and holding on to that and then having to be pulled out. The mob of terrorists were coordinating their efforts now, shouting, heave, ho, ho as they synchronized, pushing their weight forward, crushing me further against the metal doorframe. The man in front of me grabbed my baton that I still held in my hands, and in my current state I was unable to retain my weapon. He bashed me in the head and face with it, rupturing my lip and adding additional injury to my skull. And then you hear this uh, Capitol Police officer, Harry Dunn, describe how he was accosted by these people, this crowd, called the N-word, described exactly how it happened, when it happened, where it happened, what the circumstances were.
2: Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, fucking nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer.
1: And just, just wow. Wow. All of it was just wow. And they got to tell their stories without this other nonsense.
0: To me, the really surprising thing was how the officers spoke about January 6th and the language they used. Like, I was legitimately surprised when Officer Daniel Hodges talked about the January 6th attackers as terrorists, said they were a member of a cult. I'm just not used to police officers speaking that way, I guess. And it it seemed like a little bit of a line in the sand.
1: I feel like it's a reasonable line to have, to have an angry mob of thousands drag you, electrocute you, beat you to within an inch of your life, nearly kill you, and they're doing it while they're waving these political flags and trying to accomplish this political result. I think at that point, you might view them as a terrorist. Yeah, and I think, you know what? It's probably good language. It's language that a lot more people should be using, I think, because this was a case of domestic terrorism. Whether or not it's been widely uh, described as that or whether the language has shifted to describing it as an insurrection instead, It, it was a violence for political purposes that's, that's the definition of terrorism.
0: When we come back, can this committee actually hold anyone responsible for the events of January 6th?
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding. Or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: It was clear to me from watching the testimony of these officers this week that they want accountability. There was this one moment where Harry Dunn, the Black officer who testified, he was so blunt.
2: If a hitman is hired and he kills somebody, the hitman goes to jail. But not only does the hitman go to jail, but the person who hired them does. There was an attack carried out on January 6th, and a hitman sent them. I want you to get to the bottom of that. Thank you.
0: What do you think this committee can do in terms of accountability for these officers. Is that even in their brief?
1: I think that Benny Thompson, the chairman of this committee, has shown very, 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 very good instincts so far. What do you mean by that? In the way that the first hearing went off um, and, and in the way that his opening statement went off, it was just very somber, um, you know, not overhyped rhetoric, just straightforward, you know, just the facts kind of thing. And the presentation of the entire hearing yesterday, but also he very explicitly after the hearing said uh, a thing that I hadn't really heard or seen from previous oversight efforts from Democrats, which was, we are going to go straight to subpoenas. We're not going to mess around with letters requesting people to cooperate with our hearing that we know might not cooperate. We're not gonna waste time on that two weeks, three weeks notice to come up with your legal defense and try to block uh, uh, participation. We're gonna send subpoenas directly to people. And this came shortly after the Department of Justice had, had broadcast that it was taking the position that former administration officials, current officials, whoever, needed to cooperate with any subpoena and they could not cite privilege or any sort of protections to stymie such subpoenas.
0: Do you feel like this is a lesson learned from the impeachment experience?
1: I I think that they're not messing around. They're not messing around. And I also think that a problem of the impeachment experience and the various experiences was there were always some issue making it difficult to actually enforce things specifically the fact that you had a DOJ and an administration that would that the baseline policy was zero cooperation, that you as Congress are not entitled to anything and you will get nothing. We will tie you up in court for months and years if need be, and they did. And so that sort of prevents subpoenas from being really all that effective. And now you have administration that is explicitly saying they will cooperate. And what you have is you have the, the ability as members of Congress to subpoena White House archives. And you have the DOJ saying, yeah, you can do that. So there's a difference to a certain extent of not necessarily will alone, but because the will is definitely feeling a little bit more there, but will and ability. So so yeah, there's a, there, there are multiple differences.
0: Well, so what you're saying is this select committee is dedicated to getting the information out there prying it out of people if necessary but once they have that information what can they actually do
1: to me truth and reconciliation is a noble goal and if all they accomplish is they find out exactly what happened on that day and how it how it all played out that to me alone if they're not able to charge you know officials with Uh, inciting an insurrection or anything like that, which are very, very hard crimes to even contemplate, if they're able to get at the truth of the matter and and put that into the public domain, which hasn't happened yet, um, to me, there is the utmost value in that. and And that is necessary. It's essential.
0: I can't tell if it's enough for those officers, though. I just can't tell. I don't know.
1: It's a start. But but you're right. I don't, I don't know either.
0: I spend a lot of time in Slack with you. <laughs> ah. And you talk a lot about how Democrats, like, don't seem to have the guts to do the right thing, like the hard thing. Is your take changing at all after this hearing?
1: I want to see what subpoenas they send, and I want to see who they send the subpoenas to. But so far, I am, they have done exceptionally well, in my view, in, in, in sort of playing the hardball that is needed to do the things necessary to get the truth that the public needs to hear. It's cheesy to say, but democracy works better, society works better, everything works better when people have the truth. And in order to do, to do that, you need public officials willing to find the truth and to fight to find the truth. It's, like I said, it's a good start.
0: Do we know what the next hearing for this committee looks like?
1: I think that some of the next steps will be talking to some of those um, leader, in leadership, in the leadership of the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and um those who were you know had authority over the national guard that day and sort of to tr- try to m- do more to square that circle of uh why was the response and why were the reinforcements for these men who were so horribly attacked so slow to come one of the one of the officers said the craziest thing which was, which to me was just like put it all in perspective which was we had no reinforcements there were like you know, small number of us, that crowd and that mob was so big compared to the few amount of officers they had. And the, one of the key questions, if not the key question that they need to answer is, how did it get to a point where it was so many against so few and they did not have the backup they needed to protect the seat of American democracy?
0: Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Mary. With pleasure as always.
0: Jeremy Stahl is a senior editor for Slate. And that's the show. What next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We get help each and every day from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Tomorrow in this feed, what does your broken iPhone screen have in common with a farmer's tractor? On our Friday show, What Next TVD, Lizzie O'Leary is going to be here to look at how the government is changing its stance on your right to repair your personal tech. I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here on Monday.